Stephanie Fast was born during the Korean War. At four years old, her mother was unable to provide for her any longer, so she said, I'm going to put you on a train, take that train till it stops. When you get off that train at the stop, your uncle will be waiting for you. So at four years old, she boarded that train. Hours later, when it came to a stop, she got off that train, but there was no uncle waiting. Four years old, she's been abandoned. She said it was a common practice at that time because when families could not support children, they were often abandoned to the streets. That's how she found herself at four years old. For the next three years, she would live in the street. She would eat mice. She would eat bugs. She would be abused. She was considered cursed because an abandoned child was not taken in by other people because they believed that there was something wrong with that child, and so nobody would help her. She went through terrible, terrible things, and then at seven years old, she's lying on the ground about to die when something pretty amazing happens. You know, Lee Strobel shared about growing up with a a father that was very distant, very angry. As he would say, you know, his whole life at 50, he went to therapy and was sharing, my father never said anything kind to me. And what he remembers his dad saying at graduation, his father looked at him in anger and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. Lee Strobel shared he had interrupted his father's plans. He was not wanting a child. And so his father resented him. And there was all this conflict. And as you know, every counselor knows, most of us develop our first idea of God from the relationship we have, you know, most often with our father. And so Lee Strobel became an atheist. He said, if God is like my father, I don't want anything to, to do with him. John Maxwell said it well. Most successful people point to the hard times as the key point in their journey to develop. And here's the key. You must become committed to managing your bad experiences. You must become committed to managing your bad experiences. We can always choose what something means. You know, Lee Strobel became an atheist, but there was no fulfillment in that. He had all this resentment for his dad. He said there must be something more to life. And so he began this search, traveling the world, talking to different spiritual leaders. And he became convinced, you know, that Christ is truly Messiah. And he wrote the well-known book, The Case for Christ, completely transformed, you know, that experience with his dad to become this place where he lives now in grace and as minister. This is the time of Advent. It's the season we talk about, you know, hope and peace and joy and love. Advent, the arrival of the Messiah. We're going to look at something Isaiah says about Messiah for you and I today, and it may not be something so familiar. Isaiah, of course, is the one that shares about, you know, he's 600 years B.C., has this vision, this prophecy about everything about Jesus' life. He's the one, you know, that would first proclaim he's going to be born of a virgin. And when Jesus is born, Matthew then writes the gospel and says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah, of course, also saw everything in relation to what we call Easter. He saw the the torture, crucifixion, death of Messiah. You know, this is centuries before crucifixion was even invented. So we know so much about Messiah's life because of Isaiah from his birth to his death. But at the end of Isaiah, he's going to see a different picture of Jesus. It's verse 60, verse 1 of chapter 63. The first part of that verse reads this. Who is this who comes from Edom dressed in bright red? Now, the bright red, Isaiah makes clear, is because there's been judgment. And so he's wearing this red because there's been a judgment upon sin and upon Edom. 
The question is, Isaiah sees Jesus coming from Edom. Well, what is Edom? And that's going to be a very key thing for us to understand about our life in Christ. So what is Edom? Where was Edom? Well, Edom is named after Esau. And so in Scripture, you'll see Esau and Edom used interchangeably. Esau, of course, the son of Isaac, the brother of Jacob, he would found the city of Edom. And Esau and Edom, they both mean red. You remember that Esau got his name because his skin tone was red. And later on, he's going to take and eat this famous you know, bowl of soup that is also red. So Esau founds Edom, and of course Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. What is the picture being painted about Esau? He has completely rejected God. He has completely entered into sin, and he wants nothing to do with truth. And he's going to found a city, Edom, and those people, his ancestors, are going to continue to repeat that same rejection of God, embracing sin. Notice what Esau also did. You go back to Genesis 26. We're told when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the Hittite, and also Basemath, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. What is the picture being painted here? Esau chooses to marry two women who were Hittites or Canaanites. Canaanites were also this group of people that lived in violence and sin, idolatry, all sorts of wickedness. So Esau not only rejects his birthright, he now enters into relationship with Canaanite. He is a picture of somebody completely immersed in sin. And Edom continues that lineage Moses comes into contact with Esau's descendants in Edom when he tries to ask the king of Edom if he can pass through their land, which is a short on the way to the promised land. And Edom, the Edomites, tell Moses, if you try to march through our land, we will come out against you with a sword and we will attack. And then Numbers 20 says Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. So again, Isaiah sees Jesus coming out of Edom, and Edom is founded by Esau. It's a representation of sin, complete rejection of God. Now we all know Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Well, what was the fullness of time at that moment Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Remember then Matthew chapter 2, first couple verses. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. And when King Herod heard about the star, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. What's the key here? Well, we're told very clearly Jesus was born when Herod reigned. You know, King Herod reigned 43 years. And he built cities and palaces and fortresses known as the wonders of the world. He most famously enlarged that second temple, the same one Jesus threw the money changers out of. And because Herod was so wicked, ruled with his iron fist, he was so violent, people feared him. The Romans gave him the title King of Judea. You remember in Matthew, Herod then orders the sacrifice of the children in Bethlehem. Because he hears about this king. And he says, what king? What do you mean another king has been born? He was this terrible, violent, wicked person. 
What does this have to do with Isaiah? Well, Herod was an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. So when you see Isaiah say, who is this who comes from Edom dressed in bright red? What is the picture being painted? When Jesus came at the exact right time when the fullness of time had come. Jesus could have entered into our world when David was reigning and David was a godly king. Or what about when Josiah was reigning, another godly king? When did Jesus, the fullness of time, arrive in this world? When Esau's descendant, Edom, Herod, reigned with wicked, violent rule. That's when Jesus entered in. And that's what Isaiah sees. Who is this coming out of Edom? When did Jesus enter into the fullness of time? At one of the most wicked points in history. When the ultimate sworn enemy of Israel, Edom, was in charge. And Jesus enters into Edom to snatch that reign out of Satan's hands, to snatch us out of the grip of sin, and to deliver us even in the most difficult moment. Many people may be facing their own Edom. Maybe they've compromised their faith, and Jesus enters into that Edom that we might be set free. Or maybe you're facing that oppression from, you know, this Esau figure. He represents Satan and you're struggling and you're saying, where is my deliverance? Know that Christ enters into Edom. He'll enter into your Edom, my Edom, to deliver us. The same thing that happened here to Stephanie Fast. What happened when she was seven years old? I'll share her own words. Iris Erickson, a nurse from Sweden, had a job to rescue babies from the street. Children were abandoned because people were trying to survive after the Korean War. It was a common practice. Iris was told only rescue babies. They had a better chance of being adopted. I was seven. She found me on a garbage heap. I was more sick than alive. Much too old for her clinic. She was going to leave me there. Started to walk away. Two things happened to change her mind. She said her legs felt really, really heavy for no reason. Then Iris Erickson heard an audible voice. It said only two words. She's mine. She would later tell me I knew it was God. Who is this who comes from Edom dressed in bright red? You see, Jesus entered into Edom, says to the evil one, she's mine. He's mine. And he snatches us out of the enemy's hand. Isaiah's not done. He tells us he's going to see something else about Jesus. I love this quote here by Elizabeth Elliot, widow of Jim Elliot, who, with the four other missionary men in Ecuador, they were trying to reach this tribe of headhunters, and they were killed. And Elizabeth Elliot and the other widows chose to stay witness to those tribesmen, and they converted to Christ, but Elizabeth Elliot knew tremendous pain and suffering, but she said this, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Sometimes what we see, maybe it's, it's losing a job. It becomes the, the greatest blessing. Maybe a, a difficult relationship, we learn how to grow spiritual muscles the most. It's all about understanding the one who entered into that life, your life and my life, to redeem those broken parts. 
you know, different people have taken credit for this this relationship metaphor about the love bank. And I, I've used it often in counseling. It's a great metaphor, and it's the idea that for husbands and wives, you're either making a deposit or a withdrawal in your relationship. And so during the early stages of relationships, we all make deposits. There's kindness and love and excitement and passion. And over time, people start to make withdrawals where there's maybe a negative comment or something just mean that somebody does to another person. And once there's more withdrawals than deposits, you're going to have nothing but problems. And if that love bank has a negative account, your relationship is just in an incredibly toxic place. But Steve Jobs, he said, why don't we take that metaphor for marriage and put that into your own work? If you're an entrepreneur or you're a teacher, whatever it is, and shared, you know, every single interaction we have is an opportunity to either leave someone feeling better or worse about, and you fill in the blank for yourself. But to stop in this time of Advent and say, you know, what kind of deposits am I making in people's lives? Every single interaction I have is an opportunity to leave someone feeling better or worse about Christ. I can leave someone feeling better or worse about Christianity. I can leave someone feeling better or worse about, you know, the church itself or my integrity or my witness. But it's our choice, again, to step into these moments, the difficult times, and to say, listen, I want to be somebody that even in the difficult moments, I want to be able to manage those bad experiences as well. Because Christ entered into the Edom to rescue you and I. Think about the cultural changes that have happened just in the, in the last number of years. Some things that are so normal today, you know, they weren't always a part of this culture. You know, for instance, Amazon was founded 1994. Now it's the, the most successful company there is. Google founded 2004. YouTube founded 2005, the first iPhone in 2007. But think about these last two. Airbnb founded 2008 and Uber founded in 2009. Now the last few years, they've really taken off. But think about this. Airbnb rents more property than anybody but they don't own any property. And Uber is the most successful transportation company, but they don't own any cars. Pretty incredible. And what is the picture being painted? It's people thinking differently than others. It's people stopping and saying, you know, what could be done to expand where somebody says it could never happen? You know, if you were to tell somebody, I'm going to build the most successful rental company and own known properties, years ago, they would have laughed. If you were to say, I'm going to build the most successful transportation company and own no cars, everybody would have said that's not possible. But it's when people start thinking about what is possible, that's when life really changes. And when we start to see the impossible become possible because of our faith in Christ, everything changes. Go back to Isaiah 63. That second part of verse 1 says, Who is this that is wearing royal attire? who marches confidently because of his great strength. You know, again, Isaiah saw Jesus as a babe in a manger. He's not that babe in a manger any longer. He saw Jesus as the, the lamb led to slaughter who spoke not a word in defense. He's not that one who is that lamb anymore. Isaiah sees him as he is now, dressed in that royal attire, marching confidently in victory over the enemy with great strength. 
And we can say, now that's who I serve. The, the baby in a manger is an important part, but that's not Christ. Easter changed all of history, but he is now the risen one dressed in royal attire, marching triumphantly with great strength. And that's why you and I can live without fear. As Dave Hollis says, you are what you focus on. And when people focus uh, on limitations and lack versus saying, I focus on him who is the royal one who's invited me into his life, we live a whole lot different. Read something here by John Piper, uh, something he shared. He gave a sermon. It was outside in this arena, several thousand people. And what he shared, you know, sparked books, studies, and a whole lot of lives that were changed. Let me share what he said. Remember, you are what you focus on. John Piper shared this. It was the biggest group I'd spoken to in my life. Nine minutes, nine minutes in, half my notes blew away. I prayed, Father, you know how inadequate I feel at this moment. Please anoint me. Then I began my sermon and said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things. Be gripped by them and willing to lay down your life for them. Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, Central Africa. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, make Jesus known among the sick, the poor. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, in her retirement, partnered with Ruby, also pushing 80. They went from village to village in Cameroon. Their brakes gave way. Over a cliff they go. They're dead instantly. I asked the people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida, they fly into eternity in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. The crowd knew the answer, calling out, no. It's not a tragedy. I'll read what a tragedy is from Reader's Digest. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. He was 59. She was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, collect shells. That is a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. I plead with you, don't buy it. I'm not against someone in retirement slowing down, but as the last chapter before you stand before the creator to give an account with what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good softball swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life. The way to not waste your life is give God glory for every gift Everyone, from a new car, physical safety, your next heartbeat. It's all grace, bought and paid for through the cross. A CT stud said, only what's done for Christ will last. Who is this one who comes out of Edom? Dressed in royal attire. 
Isaiah receives the answer in the last part of verse 1. It is I, the Lord, speaking in righteousness. It is I, the Lord, who is mighty to save. Advent, the Lord mighty to save. Norman Vincent Peale said, Christmas waves a magic wand over this world and behold, everything is softer, more beautiful. He rescues us out of Edom. By his great power, he calls us to this life to live it for him. And he is mighty to save. So we close here this morning. Here's a picture of that advent. Emmanuel, God with us. Dave Hollis shared he and his wife spent five years trying to adopt a baby. Finally, they were called. There was a baby to be adopted. They went to the hospital. They found out it wasn't one. It was two. There were twins. They were so excited. Six weeks later, they're living life as a family. There's a knock on the door. A social worker shows up and says, listen, that adoption, it was not finalized. The parents want these babies back. You have five minutes to get those children in the car seats. With that, the social worker took the babies, drove away, and Dave Hollis and his wife were left weeping, broken. They reached out to the biological father and said, you know, could we possibly visit? And he said no. Dave Hollis said he sat in a cafe with his wife and she was sobbing. He said through her sobs, she spoke two words, I'm done. It was the choice to end this marathon five years trying to adopt. His wife was done and he was done. But as he would share, you know, the tables at this restaurant, they were in there close together and the man next to them slammed his hand down on their table, startled them both. Dave Hollis writes what happens next. This man said, you can't give up. I was adopted. My parents failed adoptions before they adopted me and my brother. And they sat in the place you are sitting right now. And they had to make a choice to give up or keep going. They kept going. If they hadn't, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have graduated at the top of my class, married my wife, or have my career. You can't quit. I'm sitting right here now because I'm supposed to tell you you can't give up. Our jaws were on the floor. We wiped away tears, reached out our hand to introduce ourselves. I'm Noah, he said. Of course, his name was Noah. In the flood we were in, we were sent Noah to help us appreciate in a sea of doubt God had been with us the entire time. Two months later, we were paired with a pregnant mama looking for adoptive parents. At the end of February, she gave birth with us in the room. When the nurse asked for a name, there was only one that felt like a fit. Noah, Elizabeth. Noah for the man in the restaurant and Elizabeth, my wife's middle name and the name of the selfless woman who chose to trust us with her baby. Who is this who comes from Edom dressed in bright red? Who is this one wearing royal attire who marches confidently because of his great strength? It is I, the Lord, speaking in righteousness. It is I, the Lord, who is mighty to save.